podcast about things and interest programmers called code monkey talks we're your co-hosts i'm brian jackson and joining me is brian demers thanks and joining us this week is our guest brian fox welcome hi guys hey so uh we were just talking about how maybe we should rename the show the brian show <laughs> right what do you think uh, i think so. it's Tri- gonna be triple confusing. brian or triple i don't know q yes Yes. Um, so uh, for our listeners, uh, the format of the show is uh, we've broken it up into three segments. We'll first talk uh, about stuff that are current events in the news. Then we'll dig into an interview with Brian Fox. And then and at the end of the show, we'll have a, uh, a segment where we give you something to do uh, for the coming week. Uh, so with that, before we dive into the in the news section, we actually got some feedback this week uh, from one of our listeners, Justin. I appreciated him uh, writing into us, and uh, he had some great suggestions. One of them was that we should talk a little bit more about who we are. Um, so I figured this would be a good time to do that. Um, I just wanted to tell uh, the listeners a little bit about my background, where I've come from. Uh, I've I started as a job developer, and I parlayed that into a passion for build and release and uh, CI uh, type stuff. Um, I worked at ESPN for about eight years, and uh, then I was at Apple last year uh, for about a year working on Apple Pay. And uh, now I'm at Lucasfilm. I'm, I'm working on uh, ILMX Lab and, and uh, our advanced development group uh, doing uh, uh, some cool stuff in the Star Wars universe. And um, But my passion and my day job still in uh, what I call DevOps, um, you know, uh, the idea of build and, and release and being a developer for developer. Um, so, Brian Demers, why don't you tell the, the listeners a little bit more about you? Yeah, so this is actually a great show to talk about this. So, uh, early in my career, uh, I started working with Brian Fox, uh, and then I tagged along with him at Sonotype as well. Um, and then, transitioning to ESPN, I worked with Brian Jackson. So it's kind of full circle-ish uh, today. Yeah. Um, but my career's um, mostly been in the Java world, a little bit into the Python OpenStack world, uh, but mostly Java and build-related things. Um, and I also work on Apache Shira, which is a Java security framework. Um, and I'm a developer evangelist at a company called Stormpath. Cool. And I think this would be a great time to hear more about Brian Fox. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I started my career uh, doing C, C++, um, in sort of the telecom industry and then moved on into uh, doing Java in the public health. That's when uh, we brought Brian Demers on board uh, a long time ago. Um, and then around 2006-ish, I guess, I got involved in uh, Apache Maven and then uh, ultimately ended up, uh, you know, leaving uh, public health and uh, helping to start Sonatype in what, 2007, I guess. Um, and, you know, I've been here ever since. Um, I'm currently the, the CTO here at Sonatype. Cool. Well, congratulations. Uh, I don't think, I think it's the first time I'm getting to talk to you since uh, you have moved into that role. And uh, that's yep. really exciting. I've, I've been a big fan of Sonatype for many years and what you guys have been doing. Uh, 
both as a, a client and, and just somebody who's a fan of Maven and, uh, and uh, Nexus. So now our, our next segment is uh, in the news. Uh, we talk about current events and uh, we each pick a news story that we'll, uh, we recently read and uh, we'll discuss it with uh, each other. So Brian Demers. Why don't you go first? What's your uh, programming news this week? Sure. So I think it was last week or the week before we talked about how Google released this big white paper about uh, their securities. It, it touched on physical security, virus level security, all this stuff. It was it was really interesting. So Evernote published a series of blogs yesterday, um, basically describing how they um, moved from you know their physical you know owned machines out into Google's cloud. And it's a pretty good write-up about how they, um, you know, had to balance both, you know, both instances, their private host hosting as well as, you know, into the migration. So it talks about how they migrated terabytes and terabytes worth of data. Um, it talks a little bit about how they had how they were they were thrashing their network, so they had to scale things back. And it gets into a, a little bit of the technical details. As far as uh, they ran into some limitations with with one of the JVMs that they were using, uh, it's not too deep into that, but it's a great overall read, um, and it definitely discusses enough to keep you interested. And it's like a five part blog, and it's it's pretty long and in, in detail, so definitely worth checking out. I think this is really interesting because uh, for people who are moving from physical servers um, or start in that environment of, of you know, renting space in a data center or uh, like a Linode type setup where they are managing a server to moving to uh, one of these platforms like Google, like Amazon, um, DigitalOcean, things like this. It, I think there's a really interesting case study in how a large company does that migration. Yeah, it, it's, it's really cool. Um, they do talk about how their migration was phased and now that they're running on the cloud they can take advantage of more um, cloud level services but basically this walks through them migrating a bunch of their sort of vm based you know instances over to being basically vms on on google cloud um but then at the end it talks about how they're they're planning to to take advantage of more uh more of the services uh, obviously they switched the the data store Right. I mean, that was one of the big reasons, I think, for them moving over. Um, and it talked about how much better the replication is, you know, out of the box with with Google's offerings versus what they were doing with like WebDAV um, by themselves. So it's 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 really cool. Yeah. Uh, Brian Fox, you know, you at some type obviously deal with large scaling issues. Um, you know, what what um, how does this fit with what, you know, you, the the types of problems that you're dealing with? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we're um, pretty heavy Amazon uh, cloud uh, users for a lot of the different things, some of the big data stuff that we'll probably talk about later. Um, but, uh, you know, we're also seeing an increasing number of our very large customers over the last uh, year or so that are basically moving wholesale into the into the cloud, basically outsourcing their data centers, um, and you know, frankly, getting stuff from an on-prem data center. You know, when you're moving 15 terabytes of of Nexus data, for example, up into the cloud presents unique challenges. Just getting it 
into the cloud uh, in a reasonable scale and then dealing with it once up once it's up there so yeah we're we're seeing a lot of that both you know our internal usage and and, and our customers and I think it's just going to increase as time goes forward do you guys still own the um uh, I call it the Maven Central server, or uh, I think there's a different name for it now, right? Is it just the Central Central repository? repository. Yep, yeah. we still uh, we still run that. Um, you know, I think uh, last year we did 53 billion downloads. Uh, the year before was uh, something like 34 billion downloads. So we've come a long way from the early days when we were dealing with you know 500 million downloads, and I was the guy running it and and uh, preventing it from being dosed and all the, all those fun things. Cool. Well, I think that's a good transition into uh, our next story. Uh, so, Brian Fox, uh, what did you want to discuss? Yeah, I, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I, I published a, a blog that was sort of a letter that, that I wrote and uh, Robert Schold, uh the current PMC chair of Maven, wrote to um, sort of the Jigsaw working group. And if you're not familiar with Jigsaw, it's it's sort of, I think I can remember the early days of Sonatype where we were trying to figure out how that fit into the Maven land and, and what that meant, but it's it's um, modularizing the JVM and, and making it possible to do things sort of like OSGI um, in Java. And, um, you know, one of the things I've observed over the years has been, you know, different ecosystems that have come along since Maven, you know, things like uh, NPM, for example. Um, haven't always followed some of the best practices that were laid out, you know, and I, I think that's uh, for me personally a little bit frustrating. But I think one of the ones that's most uh, relevant here is, you know, the original NPM stuff launched without a without a strong name spacing, and mm-hmm. so it didn't take too long before they started to have lots of name collisions. And you know, it was always, you know, I'd, I'd always get on my soapbox and and say, well, you know, at least Java and Maven kind of had that sorted out. That you know, with the with the class path and the reverse DNS um, namespacing of the Java packages prevented class path clashes, and then Maven obviously adopted that, and we were able to to do a pretty good job of making sure that Maven Central didn't allow um, namespace uh, conflicts. But what's uh, unfortunately seems to be happening with the Jigsaw stuff is that. You know, they have this interesting challenge where they need to map all of this, you know, this this giant wealth of existing Java components into basically a new module system. And what they've chosen to do is use the file name of a jar as the module name by default when... Um, when it, it obviously hasn't already been modularized. So on day one, you know, that will be the case for basically everything. And only looking at the file name basically means, for example, everything in Maven Central that has the same artifact ID, regardless of what the group ID namespace actually is, will have a conflict on the module ID. And, um, you know, I, I found out about this at, uh, during a talk at Java 1, and it kind of freaked me out because I could see exactly all of the pains that the NPM community is still dealing with uh, where they tried to back in a namespace after the fact. So, um, you know, I think that's a little bit concerning for, for how that plays out, and uh, we've been trying to, trying to change their minds on that but not getting a lot of traction so far. Yeah, yeah you mentioned it was, uh, what is it, like 15%? collisions like out of the box <laughs> yeah we did we did an analysis of all of the components in central and it was something like uh yeah 13 percent of the artifact ids are named the same and that's that's obviously only central that that does not have visibility into what uh, custom jars people may have and Absolutely. and the real problem is there you start pulling things in transitively you don't have control over what 
somebody else's name their project and and uh, you know whereas today it's highly unlikely that you're not going to have a collision of that type I think it's going to be extremely likely when people start to modularize that stuff mm. um, you know and further my concern was that it, it you know doing it this way and 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 boiling things down to simple you know foo type module names doesn't set a best practice for actually using a fully qualified uh, scoped name uh, which is effectively retracing the the mistakes that npm made you know and and there's a lot of our customers struggle with that um, because N npm backed in a concept they call scopes which is really just adding a namespace and so the the challenge is that uh, anybody can come along and publish something um, to npm and the default scope can be picked up and so you can almost do a sort of a injection attack if you knew a target package that was in used by a company and you just registered it in the public repo it might actually get downloaded if if the the companies weren't weren't sort of whitelisting components so i mean the namespacing is really important and i feel like uh, this is a potentially large step backwards for the java ecosystem unfortunately I, t I totally agree, and and I know uh, the Chef community has similar issues. I, I I haven't really played with Chef in the last couple of years, but it was the same type of thing. Um, you know, the first module become along. I know there was a Nexus one that we used quite a bit, and um, I think it came out of Riot uh, Riot Games, mm -hmm. and uh, there was a couple forks of that, and of course they were named the same thing, and there was no there was no namespacing. So it was just a matter of which one you installed and which version, and it was very very difficult to uh to track some of those things down uh and it doesn't need to be difficult right 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 there are patterns that just simply have to be followed uh, learnings of the past right so one of the things that i think for our listeners benefit that i was right i it took a while for me to get my head around with both osgi and, and now jigsaw of what problem they're trying to solve um so i just want to summarize quickly like one of the things that i think this tries to solve is the idea of I use a library and it's depending on another library, XYZ 1.0. And then there's a, there's another library I bring in that's depending on XYZ 2.0. Um, in, uh, uh, if you don't have this modularized namespace, uh, you end up, there's like a, a conflict in those, those versions, right? Wh which one wins? And, both uh, OSGI and Jigsaw are trying to allow you to be in like a sandbox so that if a module brings in something, it brings in all of those dependencies at the exact version that it needs um, and allows them to kind of have their own um, space. And, uh, you know, I think this is really important and I really love the way that Maven has solved this with a coordinate system that is on the build time very good about kind of dealing with the collisions, at least in that coordinate space. Um, this auto module thing definitely seems like a big step back. Uh, it's one of those things that as I move into other places that have dependency management, like NPM, like uh, Python with um, uh, PyPy, that I, I long for a, a good coordinate system like, uh, like Maven uh, and uh, Gradle, Gradle adopting that on top of that as well. So moving on to our next story, uh, I wanted to um, mention that uh, I read that ThoughtWorks, uh, which owns uh, a, uh, a CI in the cloud, Snap CI, uh, has decided to close up shop on it. They didn't have the adoption that they were looking for. And um, it's a shame because I, I think it's a really great product that they had. Um, you know, the the other big product and the product that they will continue to um 
uh, Foster is uh, Go CD that they've had for many years. Um, I think it was originally built on top of cruise control. And um, uh, the big thing that it's, it has done is uh, adopt the the workflow style that um, Jez Humble uh, has uh, kind of put forward on, in continuous delivery of having uh, stages and uh, every commit ends up going through these uh, stages and having a visual representation of the, that pipeline uh, for each commit. Snapsy, I took that into the cloud to be kind of competitive with um, uh, Travis CI um, or now like Circle CI. And uh, I just recently learned about Semaphore CI. And uh, I thought Snapsy was a really good implementation um, in, in the cloud. And I was, I'm sad to see it go. Um, have, have either of you guys? Uh, had familiarity with what ThoughtWorks either Go or the SnapCI product? I, I played with Go when it first was announced, um, yeah. and then I found out where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> so I stopped playing with it. Uh, I had heard a few other good things after that. I mean, I'm sure it's matured since it was since it was cruise control. Um, but that was that was definitely the initial turnoff. But that's you know yeah. should, that's that was my pre bias you know cha- you know. Well, I remember making me not. Not- I actually remember when you evaluated it. I think it was at ESPN at the <laughs> I time. was, yes. And um, it was so lacking in, like, Maven support, which at the time, I mean, Maven had been around yep. a good, like, eight years at that point. So um, it's felt like a real big disconnect with kind of where the uh, the industry was at the time. I'm sure, like you said, it's matured since then, but I have not given it a chance. Um, whereas SnapCI was kind of built built from scratch and uh, had a very like Heroku type of um, adoption of kind of plug in anything that runs on Linux, you can basically script, uh, you know, what you needed to, to uh, have installed. So Brian Fox, are you, are you familiar with uh, ThoughtWorks products? Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't personally used ThoughtWorks since cruise control uh, way back in the day. Um, I have, I have not seen SnapCI, but I have seen GoCD uh, at a number of customers. It seems to be reasonably popular for people that are doing CD and, and pipeline types of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, we 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 see Jenkins and those types of things uh, with their pipeline support much more. But uh, you know, GoCD definitely is floating around out there. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I think this is a good time to jump into our interview. Um, so. Uh, before we dive into that, uh, Brian Fox, I like to ask all of our guests, uh, since it's a, it's a broad topic and different people have different definitions, uh, how do you define DevOps? Yeah, that's such a, such a challenging thing, isn't it? I think uh, yeah. DevOps is really uh, more of a cultural shift that's focused on bringing uh, the dev and ops together or developers who are doing ops or, or ops guys who are doing development, right? But bringing, bringing that kind of uh, together, you know, in a, in a similar fashion that we saw with Agile uh, bringing, you know, QA and dev. You know, we don't often talk about QA as a, as a totally separate thing anymore. Um, you know, with unit testing, integration testing, automation, and I look at DevOps as sort of that that next level transformation of that, bringing that sort of that last mile into the same sort of circle. I like it, uh, especially with your experience. Uh, it's uh, it's nice to hear kind of the fact that I I completely agree. This is very much about kind of the culture um, shift that um, uh, an organization, whether it's a small one or a big one, undergoes uh, on how everybody works together to deliver a product. 
Um, so speaking of products, tell us more about uh, what you're doing at uh, Sonatype. Yeah, so at Sonatype, I think people are probably most familiar with our, our product, the Nexus Repository Manager. You know, that was kind of the, the thing we started with way back in the day, which is um, a binary repository for uh, Maven, NuGet, you know, Bower, NPM, um, Yum, RPM, <laughs> R, you know, pretty much all the yet another uh, component formats that, that are uh, coming around, uh, Docker, those types of things. Um, so that that's kind of our oldest uh product, you know, about, um, say, five years ago, we started, um, you know, looking into uh, component consumption patterns and, and trying to understand what people are doing. And, and one of the interesting realizations that we had back then was that uh, if, you, if you took a look at um, components in terms of popularity or even uh, presence of known security vulnerabilities, that there was no discernible difference between the rate of consumption of the, the good ones versus the bad ones. Um, and, you know, we started looking into that and ultimately kind of uncovered that a big part of the problem was that consumers were just generally unaware uh, of the presence of potentially significant vulnerabilities in, in these uh, components, um, you know, especially at higher levels of the organization where, you know, even five years ago, they might disclaim that they were even using open source when we could quite definitively tell based on, you know, download statistics from Central and things like that, that they were using a lot of them. I think it was just sort of a case uh, from the bottoms up, developers were, were really going to town using Maven and other things and, and, you know, leveraging these components, but without regard to the actual quality of them. Um, and so that, that started us uh, down sort of a, a parallel path of the repository, um, which led to the sort of the current suite of products that we call Lifecycle and, and uh, Nexus Firewall, which is really leveraging all of the past uh, almost nine years of experience of trying to figure out how do we help people better manage components and, and to do so from a, a perspective that is really compatible with DevOps. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of started that before DevOps was, was even a thing. It was more just trying to understand how do we, how do we merge uh, sort of legacy governance processes into something that doesn't make developers uh, want to spend half their day coding around the process, right? And so, um, you know, we continue to kind of push the envelope on that. Yeah, I think it's a great product. Um, I used it when it was uh, in the days when it was called CLM. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's now IQ Server is the, is the equivalent at this point. And uh, it is such a great tool in the arsenal for folks who want to practice um, I've heard a couple different terms rugged DevOps, secure DevOps but integrating not just developers and operations but also the security folks uh, into that equation um, but allowing you to have a full picture of you know, are you using any licenses that are incompatible with your software are you using um, you know, stuff that has security vulnerabilities uh, I think this is really important data to be able to surface and then act on, right? And, and actually make it a part of your process of, of having that be some of the quote unquote bugs that you fix in a product that you're releasing. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a, a really big fan of, of the Nexus products or the, the, you know, your Sonatype products that are in that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the times it just comes down to surfacing the right level of information to developers. You know, I, I talked to a lot of compliance uh, people and security people, and, you know, sometimes they talk down about developers 
and they're lazy, they don't care, and really that's not the case. No yeah. no developers really wake up in the morning and try to figure out like how am I going to really do a, a poor job, right? I mean, no artist does that, and I think it's <laughs> unless you, unless you're the guy from Office Space, right? But um, you know, um, but really it comes down to information availability, and and you know, counterintuitively, a lot of times the governance processes that companies put in place actually make it harder. They disincent in uh, innovation, right? That they mm. when they get when they achieve compliance is by breaking the will of the developers, where they just throw their hands up in the air and say, "Fine, I guess I'll keep using this version of Struts that's now ten years old and has a known level ten exploitable, remotely exploitable vulnerability." Right? And and clearly that's not what the governance process meant. The process was not meant to uh, to harm innovation and actually increase risk by making people use older components. And so, you know, my my you know mission has been to try and you know align what is actually the easier thing to do with what is the right thing for the organization. And it, it turns out it's not it's not really that hard. The the cultural shift turns out to be really hard, you know, because everybody's been conditioned to, um, you know, this sort of very rigid whitelist, blacklist, um, you know, beat the developer approach and, and um, you know, via some automation and defining of what the actual criteria for a bad component is up front totally allows you to automate that and, and sort of give the, the developers instant information that allows them to understand, them, am I inside the rails or outside the rails? Right and and uh, gives the governance people you know that control to block a release if people are really outside the rails and and continuing to ignore it. So, um, you know, as anything, changing behaviors is more about the culture than it is about um, you know the the technology itself. And yeah, that, that's the hardest part. Yeah, you know, I think what it's trying to solve too is making uh, or letting people who are good at something be good at the thing that they're good at, and you know, allow them to hand over the pieces that, uh, you know, somebody else might be better at, you know, whether it's a developer relying on a security person, uh, or a governance person or, uh, the operations person relying on mm -hmm. a developer. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, a really good part of this. Um, the other thing is, uh, having, um, uh, you know, having governance as a part of your process. Um, and so that, uh, you know, instead of having a developer need to fill out a form in triplicate and fax it over to some department because they want to use a five kilobyte open source uh, project, um, it's, it's, that's not, a modern way of handling that problem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the thinking, you know, early on, uh, talking about open source, you know, uh, especially higher ops and, and larger organizations tend to equate that with things like Linux and Firefox and MySQL, right? Where you can literally have a a manual workflow and a review panel who takes their time deciding should we allow this into our organization or not. But the way you approach those types of very coarse grained decisions is completely different than how you would deal with uh, uh, you know, an organization that's pulling in tens of thousands of components a month, <laughs> like that, that manual review board just isn't going to cut it. And, and, uh, you know, you're either kidding yourself that you're controlling it. Um, but, you know, especially if you have a manual self, uh, self-reporting process of what you're using um, you know if you think it's all good and you're not actually checking it's probably not good uh, or you know you've you've uh, made it so draconian that the developers have just given up and now you're actually increasing risk by using older components which tend to have more known vulnerabilities over time right so um, 
yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's the grand irony in the whole process, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not sure what to do now, but at least a few years ago, the Eclipse Foundation, when they were doing releases, they would they would um, check each dependency, and it was a huge pain. Um, it would take it would take a long time to update versions um, in that project. So I don't know if it's still like that, but as far yeah. as I know, that uh, that CQ, CQ process has not changed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, see, and and they're not they're not alone, like you're mentioning, right? Like it's 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 a failed process when you have to describe it this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is quite frustrating. So I I, I know I still see. Um, some of the projects that I've been involved with, some people posting and mailing lists and Stack Overflow, they post the version of a, of a product, you know, or a, a library that they're using. And I know that some of these have, you know, CVEs in them. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of me always wants to just publicly say, oh, look, this is CVE. But then part of me is like, should I just message this guy privately? Like, there, there's a lot of these things that are just out there that you could find out. And it's, um, that's scary as well. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, it, you, you talk about CVEs and uh, in our experience, you know, in the early days, uh, when we were kind of developing this, you know, the focus was on, you know, trying to connect the consumers with the information from the users, you know, because I saw firsthand as a, as an Apache member, how hard the Struts team for example, uh, tried to get their message out to the end users that, hey, there's a really bad exploit here and you need to upgrade. And then, you know, people were ignoring them and banks were getting attacked. And it wasn't for lack of trying or for lack of them following the process, right? So in, in the early days, the focus was like, well, geez, we just need to connect the communications path. Um, but in the interim, what we've also seen is that a lot of the data that's reported to NVD and the CVEs themselves are lacking. You know, they're either written for operational teams, uh, you know, where they talk about uh, bugs in the JDK um, that actually turn out to be bugs in things like Zayland, which are, are components that you might actually be using directly, right? So oftentimes those vulnerabilities are are written for the ops people or are written cryptographically so that only a security professional can understand. And so that's something we've had to we've had to do with our own security team is to basically rewrite descriptions such that you know developers um, can understand them. You know, my guidance was like if if our developers came to you and said what 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 is this? What what should I do about it? What would you tell them? You know, put that into the product so that you basically can can have a, a security guy looking over your shoulder. But even more concerningly, um, what we're seeing as we move into more, uh, well, I, I guess I would say slightly less uh, mature ecosystems, you know, uh, again, things like JavaScript, NPM, PyPy, is that we're finding that those ecosystems don't even know to report vulnerabilities to uh, the central authority. And so uh, what you find there are just literally commit logs that say, hey, I fixed this uh, SQL injection attack or this buffer overflow. Um, and unless you're mining the, the commit logs, you're never going to know, right? So we've had to develop technologies to be able to go off and, and find and discover those things and report them to our customers because um, basically there is no strong central authority for, for all of these things um, when it relies on self-reporting. And so that's, I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge um, as, as there's more proliferation around different, different package systems uh, for people to keep up. 
and you know the hackers are paying attention, right? So that's that's sort of the, the downside to this, that the attackers have kind of the first mover advantage, right? It's when one of these things is published or disclosed, you can bet they're on it, right? And uh, the time gap from when they figure that out to when your company fixes it and is actually able to remediate it can be quite large. And in the meantime, you're exposed. Yeah, well, in my career, as I've moved from Java as an ecosystem into like nowadays I'm in Python or uh, on the the C++ Windows development side of things. Um, I, I miss that level of, um, I hate to say maturity because that almost sounds condescending to these ecosystems because these ecosystems have been around as long. Um, but, uh, you know, having that, like you're saying, the, the reporting around this, um, having namespacing in the dependency management um, and having things as simple as being able to easily proxy, um, you know, do a caching proxy. You know, I think this is one of the things that I'm struggling with in like the Docker um, uh, ecosystem with images, right? That, that it's so tied to, um, you know, your, your, the server that you're actually connecting and downloading images from um, it's, it makes it very hard to do that type of caching proxy. How, let's talk about the Docker ecosystem. Um, How are you, trying to solve some of these problems in the in the docker space especially since it's obviously very popular now yeah docker docker's um all the rage lately right i mean right. um uh, we had tons of demand to add docker support to the nexus repository about a year ago and so that was actually the first format we supported on on nexus 3 um and and uh, it's been quite popular um being able to um you know, proxy and host those things is key for our customers. And, you know, it goes with all these ecosystems, but most of these large enterprises, they're all polyglot, right? And so nobody really wants to go down the path of, I'm going to install yet another repository manager, whether it's for Docker or for NPM or PyPy, really, they're, they're pushing us to support them all universally so that they can really just deal with, you know, kind of one tool to rule them all and one set of credentials and one, one official storage. Um, so Docker has been a key part of that. Um, we've recently added support to the lifecycle capability um, via partnership with a with a company called Twistlock um, that allows us to inspect Docker images themselves and and collect all the fingerprints and then be able to run that through our our process to produce the security and license and quality reports. Um, because you know the the real thing that we started to see is that. Um, you know, people are starting to consider the Docker image itself as the actual application container. So whereas, you know, last year they might have been distributing a zip or a war or an ear, it's now literally the Docker image. There is no other artifact that ends up in a repository because it's sort of uh, managed from uh, from cradle to grave in the, in the CD pipeline tool. And the thing that pops out the other end, assuming all the tests pass, is the Docker image itself. And that's the only artifact that may contain a lot of these different things. And so being able to analyze those and report on them and track them, um, you know, is, is really key. And uh, we're seeing a lot of adoption of that as well. That's that's really popular this year. Yeah, so that, that's that's got to be critical. I mean, just to be able to to crack open that image and see what vulnerabilities, you, you know, you might have within uh, the container, you know, separate from, you know, the, the, the infrastructure that you're using to host the container. Um, yeah, that, that's yeah. I mean, they're almost inseparable, and, and in some ways, um, you know, when you start moving to a container 
containerized environment, you, the, the ops, if you want to think of it as a separate discipline, is really ceding control to the to developers in a lot of cases, um, especially if uh, the the company doesn't have a mature um, sort of process where somebody is producing an official base image that is then trusted where you layer the applications on if you literally are just letting the developers decide what packages and are are installed it's no different than letting developers just go onto the ops machine and installing whatever they want you know if you're just literally taking the containers and throwing them into production that's what you're going to get and so being able to look inside these things um, and understand the behaviors and understanding what's happening to them um, is really key to be able to have a, a sane container pipeline if you will so talk to me too about um, how I'm trying to think of how to word it. Um, the the networking capabilities the of um, of these products of of when I say networking I mean um, having it so that you have multiple locations geolocated scaling across multiple data centers. Um, you know I know you've got a lot of uh, pieces that are are plugged into uh, and built into things like Nexus for doing like smart proxying and stuff. Um, you know, do you have a big demand for that? Is that something that is more an outlier that you have? Or is that kind of critical to most of the, the, the clients that you have? Yeah, it's a, it's a daily battle for me. <laughs> uh, all, of our, all of our large customers, uh, especially given the nature of, of what Nexus is doing, right? I mean, at, at, at its absolute minimum, it's a, it's a caching proxy, but then also it's distributing your internally built hosted artifacts. And anytime you have a company with more than one physical geographic location, you need to be able to move things efficiently back and forth. And so that's, um, that's been a lot of attention. It's actually one of the things that drove sort of the re architecture um, that is now Nexus 3 to be able to more efficiently uh, allow people to um, sort of uh, express how they want to expose the components in a separate sort of um, way from how they physically store them on disk or how they physically move them around the world into, into different nodes. And I think that that fits equally well into people moving into the cloud, you know, because even if you outsource your data center, which like I mentioned earlier, we're seeing a lot more, um, that doesn't relieve the need to have a, a local proxy if you've got you know a thousand developers in, in one location. And so um, being able to efficiently move components from, say, New York to London is kind of the same problem as moving it from New York to you know Amazon. Uh, they're, they're two logically separate locations, and the way you deal with that is, in, in many cases at a high level, exactly the same. Um, but you know, as people increasingly move into the cloud, then then the challenges become somewhat different because now you need to deal with um, you know uh, cloud native types of storage and and databases which have different um, performance metrics in terms of availability or uh, latency more specifically. Um, so you you kind of give up latency for redundancy and and uh, global availability, and so being able to balance all of those things. Um, is definitely a challenge, uh, but uh, being able to do so efficiently is is really the market opportunity because at the end of the day, people just need to be able to serve their components to the developers um, and not have to worry about all the intricacies underneath it. Cool, Brian Demers, do you have any other questions? I do. So, are you, are you guys doing any any private hosting? So, obviously, you, you guys help manage uh, a lot of the the public instances of Nexus, but is this are you doing any private offerings for 
I don't know, say a lot of, as people people's builds move to the cloud, right? Uh, they need to store their artifacts somewhere. Uh, so you mean like software as a service specifically? Yeah. Yeah, we, I mean, we've toyed with that over the years. We haven't really um, kind of put together an offering on that. You know, when we, we talk to our customers, a lot of our customers, um, I, I, I think there's a little bit of a selection bias, but a lot of our customers tend to be large financials and, and things like this um, where, where security is obviously um, – you know, top of mind, compliance, PCI, PII, that type of stuff. Um, and so what we've actually seen when we really dug into it is that um, they're not actually moving to software as a service for these types of things, right? Because the, the things that they're hosting inside of Nexus and that they're scanning with Lifecycle are their internal proprietary artifacts, right? And there's a lot of uh, potentially juicy information that that uh, can be gleaned from that type of stuff, and so putting that into a SaaS where you have no visibility into where those things are stored on disk, where they're commingled, uh, who has access to them, is just simply a non-starter, right? And so um, you know most of the, the most of the large firms are approaching it more like uh, offshoring or uh, outsourcing their data center. You know, for example, creating all of these images in, in Amazon and then putting a VPC around it, right? Um, and in, in many cases, the controls you can get from doing so can be better than what you can get in, in a, a physical location because nobody can just like literally walk in and, and walk off with a hard drive, right? It it's doesn't exist for you to be able to do that. And so being able to monitor the virtual machine and all that type of stuff is really key. And so, you know, all that kind of leads us to being able to focus on making sure our stuff is compatible with running in the cloud in those environments, um, but not not uh, making it sort of as a opaque software as a service, if you will. Do you have anything else that you would like our listeners to know uh, before we wrap up the interview? Um, I think uh, you know if you're um, if you're developing uh, component-based software, uh, and I'm sure most of you are. You know, you probably want to take a look at uh, what the quality of those components are. You know, if you come over to Sonatype.com, we have some tools to help, including some free assessments that you can do to analyze your applications and find out how good your practices actually are. So, um, so what, what, one more question on that oh, regard. Yeah. So I, I did notice on, I think it was the Sonotype website, it said something like 80% of products uh, are built from components. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to me really low. I mean, maybe that's just because, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, what I've been doing for a while. Um, what, that, what that statistic is saying is that uh, the average application these days is actually composed of 80 to 90% of open source code or at least code your developers you pay did not write. Oh, I see. Okay. So that's that's what that sign is. So it, it quite literally sense. represents the the iceberg scenario. <laughs> what you right. can see is just a tiny bit. It's all the stuff that's underneath the hood. And, um, you know, uh, these uh, shared modules and things like that represent, you know, tremendous value in the way that people can quickly innovate, right? Because you don't have to write network stacks and, and, and persistence layers and things like that. But what it actually is is uh, a common mode failure. Um, because it's basically a commodity that everybody's using. And so when there's a vulnerability in that thing that everybody's using, I mean, put yourself in the attacker's shoes. What are you going to do? Are you going to try to figure out how to break a piece of custom code, or are you going to find a vulnerability that's easy to exploit and just blast across the Internet to find who's vulnerable? I mean, the answer is obvious. And so this this part that's beneath the surface, this 80% of the modern application, actually represents an outsized risk for that reason because it's uh, – that common attack surface. So, 
Wow. That's what that stat's about. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so thanks for joining us today. Uh, Brian, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're working on? Um, yeah, you can find me on the sonotype.com blog. Uh, my Twitter is Brian underscore Fox, uh, LinkedIn, Brian E. Fox. Um, yeah, I think I'm easy to find. Yeah, thanks. So I can be found on Twitter at Brian Demers, all one word. Yep, and I can be found also on Twitter at Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. But before we go, let's leave our listeners with something to do. This is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with something to watch, read, play, or try out in some other way. Uh, Brian Demers, what did you want to leave our listeners with? Um, So the TV show, The Expanse. Uh, I watched the first season. um, I was probably a latecomer to the show. I think I watched it a few months ago. Um, so the new season two just came out. I think the episode two dropped yesterday. I I haven't seen it yet. Um, but it's a great, great space opera. Um, I'm big into the whole space far out reaching stories. Um, so it definitely caught my attention. It's also based on a series of, I think nine books by, uh, by a pair of guys. Um, I have not checked out the books. I don't know if either one of you have, but it's a no. highly recommended TV show. Yeah, I heard a lot about it. So now that you're recommending it, I, I really think I need to check check it out. Yeah, it's not quite, you know, Battlestar Galactica for me yet, but but yeah. it's it's pretty it's pretty high up there. Cool. Cool. So Brian Fox, what did you bring our, our listeners? Yeah, I know you guys uh, talk a lot about DevOps. Um, I wanted to mention um, a website called alldaydevops.com. This is something actually some of my colleagues uh, in conjunction with others in the industry put together. A couple months ago, we had uh, basically a conference and we had um, almost 14,000 registrants. So it might actually qualify for the world's largest software conference um, by sheer number and attendees. But basically, uh, you can go there and there's 57 sessions. Uh, they recorded them across or broadcast them live across 15, I think, hours uh, in one day. Um, but if you want to hear from, uh, you know, the world's experts and DevOps, uh, it's almost guaranteed that there's a session on that site uh, for your favorite person talking. So check that out, alldaydevops.com. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have a link in the show notes. This is a, an incredible resource. Uh, and I, uh, I have to say I was ignorant to it, so I'm excited to check this out myself. So thank you for the recommendation. You're welcome. Uh, so uh, what I wanted to talk about uh, or I wanted to bring for our listeners is uh, a tutorial of some sort or a, uh, it's an article. Uh, it's actually put out by the Semaphore CI uh, team. It's on their blog. Uh, it's uh, doing continuous delivery with uh, Kubernetes and Google Container Engine using Semaphore CI as kind of the central uh, piece to that. Um, I will have a link in the, the show notes that's it's about... I would say a 15 to 20 minute um, exercise to kind of walk through to basically spin up Kubernetes uh, and a small application, an example application running on uh, the Google container engine. So uh, I think it's, it's if you wanted to dabble in, in that stuff, it seems like a really great uh, exercise to, to walk through. So look in the show notes. I, I haven't seen this yet, but I just opened their website and they have a wizard on a surfboard. So <laughs> I'm I'm sold. sold? <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up our episode. You guys can check us out at codemonkey.fm and email us feedback at feedback at codemonkey.fm. 
And we have a subreddit and Slack, and those links will both be on our website. Yeah, thank you. And uh, hey, if you liked this episode, do us a favor. Review us on your favorite podcast finder, um, be it iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, uh, Downcast. Uh, there's a couple others. Um, please, uh, that would help us uh, get heard by more people. So uh, that's it for this week. Thanks again, uh, Brian Fox, for joining us. And uh, we will see you next week. <laughs>